Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute Podcast. I'm your host, Chadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, the large collaborative research network at Keras Life Sciences. I am really looking forward to this podcast. I'm hosting Dr. Milan Radovich, uh, my colleague here at Keras Life Sciences. He is a senior vice president and chief precision medicine officer. We work closely together and we are going to talk about the future of precision oncology, where we are today and where we are heading in the future. I promise you're going to enjoy this podcast episode and you probably will listen to it again. It's really interesting because precision oncology has evolved from the days when I was in training. And I'm not going to tell you when I was in training because that will give away my age and I will never do that. But what's really important is to really think big, think bold, and think what the future holds. And that is what I'm going to discuss with Dr. Milan Radovich today. I promise you, you are going to be so inspired with this episode that you're going to listen to it more than once, and you are going to share it with your friends and colleagues. Now, I want to thank you for supporting this podcast Don't forget to subscribe to it, like it, rate it, refer friends and colleagues. And as always, let me know how I'm doing by sending me an email to cnabhan at krsls.com or by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. Without further ado, Dr. Milan Radovich, exclusively on the Keras Molecular Minute Podcast. Not only do I have the pleasure and honor of working with Milan, but he is so innovative. And I promise you that by the end of this podcast, you're going to be really thinking and you're going to be scratching your head, is what I heard truly going to happen in the future? And my answer to you is absolutely yes. Milan, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I really appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule to, uh, to join me. Look, a lot of folks uh, know who you are, obviously, but for the few here and there that still don't know who you are, maybe a little bit of introduction about you, you know, what we've been doing over the past 10 to 15 years, and what do you, what's your position at Keras? Absolutely. Well, Chadi, it's an absolute pleasure to be here on this podcast with you, and I can't thank you enough for this honorable invite. Um, so uh, I serve as Keras' Senior Vice President and Chief Precision Medicine Officer. And in that role, I oversee a variety of really dynamic teams. Uh, the first team I oversee is our drug target discovery team led by Dr. Heather O'Neill, where we're leveraging this vast, large clinical genomic data set of over 300,000 patients trying to identify new drug targets to be able to help patients uh, with uh, new drug development. I also oversee our biomarker and drug intelligence team led by Dr. Rebecca Feldman. This is a really brilliant team that vets and determines all the evidence that goes on a report and how our report is developed so that we have the most effective tool for our oncologists to be able to help patients. And I also oversee our MSL team led by Dr. Marcos Pino, uh, as you know, who are frontliners in working with our oncologists in uh, delivering uh, molecular profiling and also helping with molecular tumor boards and clinical research and trials and so on. And beyond that, uh, I'm a jack of all trades when it comes to precision medicine, so designing clinical trials, helping uh, with our publications, doing a variety of research, and so on and so forth. So uh, it's quite a dynamic uh, dynamic job. But prior to this, uh, I was in academia for my entire career. I was a tenured faculty and vice president for genomic oncology at the IU Simon Comprehensive Cancer Center. Uh, there, I led a precision medicine service line dedicated to doing whole exome and transcriptome sequencing for patient care. 
also uh, uh, started and ran uh, many genomically directed clinical trials. We also had an NCI-funded laboratory focused on drug development, uh, liquid biopsy and MRD, uh, and genomically informed drug combinations. So uh, it's been a blast so far in my career, and you know what? It is even better now that I'm here with you, Chadi. Boy, it doesn't seem like you do much, Milan. I'm very, I think uh, we need to discuss that. But look, for listeners, I got to tell you what provoked me to do this podcast. I was few, it's been maybe a couple of months ago, I was at dinner with you, Milan, and we started talking a little bit about precision oncology. And I think that, um, you know, we we both obviously believe in the concept and the importance and so, and, and so forth, but you really got me thinking after the conversation into what the potential is. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a little bit more not, I would say maybe not as optimistic as you are, but we're both optimistic, but just, I mean, you were really thinking differently. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to share your thought process with our listeners. So let's start by level setting. I mean, we hear the word of precision oncology a lot. To Dr. Milan Radovich, what is precision oncology? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, like how many of us think about it is that it's tailoring therapy to individual makeup of each patient's tumor. And the reason we do this, as we know, is that each cancer um, for each patient is highly individualized. Um, I don't care if it's the same histology, same grade, same metastatic organ site, um, maybe comes from the same patient demographic. Maybe these, you know, two patients who came from the same neighborhood, same age, same race, so on. When you look at the molecular level, each cancer is uniquely different. And this is why we have heterogeneity in response. And it's simple, why we, when we take a group of patients the same, uh, with the same diagnosis and we treat them all with the same drug, what we know is that they don't all respond the same way. Some patients do well with a particular drug and some don't. And so the whole premise of precision oncology is really understanding what drives each patient's cancer and tailoring therapy to the individual makeup of each patient's cancer. So um, in my opinion, um, as we see precision oncology uh, uh, today, um, I'm actually really proud that here at Keras, we, with our comprehensive technology, develop the best comprehensive battle plans for our patients. We really strive to leave no stone unturned to identify a potential therapy for a patient. But what has been a struggle is the weapons that we use against this disease. For some markers, the therapies have been fantastic. We look at MSI high colon cancer and use of immunotherapy, we're seeing dramatic response rates that are durable. But then we look on the other side. Let's look at the recent uh, approval of ivacitinib and IDH-mutated cholangiocarcinoma, where we see benefits and improvements of regression-free survival, maybe, let's say, by two months. I don't consider that a win. Even though it may get an FDA approval, I don't consider it a win for our patients. And so we have a lot of work to do. Uh, we have a lot of work to do in identifying markers, but also a lot of work to do in developing drugs that actually result in meaningful, durable responses uh, and improvements in overall survival uh, that make a difference for our patients. This is really uh, interesting, Milan, because so when we think of precision oncology, maybe there are two, two components. One component is the technology itself to be able to identify, I guess, the molecular signature of a tumor. Mm-hmm. And the other part is, you know, the drug discovery and the drug development part in your opinion, are there targets that are not druggable? I think with advances of new technologies, the undruggable is becoming druggable. So, Chadi, let's, let's take a great example. Let's take KRS. The holy grail of oncology for 40 years, no one could develop a molecule to it until in 2017, investigators at UCSF determined 
that they could develop a molecule against the G12C, against cysteine, because cysteines are sticky, and they were able to develop a molecule specifically against that. Um, I personally had the pleasure of getting an email from Amgen that said, we're going to open a new trial of a new uh, inhibitor of KRAS. Do you have any patients with this G12C? And I was able to identify seven patients at IU uh, and had the pleasure of uh, identifying and knowing the first patient in the world ever dosed with a KRAS inhibitor, a patient from Terre Haute, Indiana. And that patient uh, ended up, was on the lowest dose at 180 milligrams, uh, achieved stable disease at first scans, unfortunately progressed in the second set of scans. Again, it was in dose escalation. But it was it was seeing, and then obviously we saw the response rates later on in the New England Journal of Medicine, somewhere around 37% in, or so in lung cancer. But it was really one of those, I think, pivotal moments in the history of oncology to me that says, look, it was a tangible example of the undruggable, what we call the undruggable, becoming the druggable. Now, what we've seen is the ability of newer technologies that allow us to go after proteins uh, that were traditionally undruggable because they lacked, for example, a catalytic component to those proteins. They weren't, you know, they're not kinases or certain enzymes. And so this is the whole field of what we call protein degraders, things like Protex, which can uh, can be targeted to specific intracellular proteins that uh, weren't traditionally druggable, but now can be uh, uh, what we call degraded, where certain uh, enzymes within the cell are recruited to those to those targets, and then uh, the, the target is degraded. And there, I think we're seeing a real renaissance and the ability to go after undruggable targets. So I think uh, the answer is, uh, your simple answer is yes, and I think it's evolving. So one of the things that we talked about, me and you, over that famous dinner that actually brought the podcast to, to light uh, today is, you had told me, and I quote, I believe we could evolve into a world where we can cure cancer, regardless yeah. of the type of cancer. And I think... My answer was, we all want to do that. I wish we could do that. I think we will improve on curing cancer. We will improve on the survival of patients with cancer. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the oncologist in me where I just don't see a world where we can really cure it. Uh, I I don't know. Let's go through your thought process because you really got me thinking that night. Absolutely. And let's be purists for a second, because we're both experts in the field here. Um, I, I think what we kind of stated or what we finalized is, can we see a future where the disease-free survival rate is greater than 90% across solid tumors? Yep. Let's yep. just set that as a bar Yep. In, in early all early stage tumors. And I think as we chatted, it is a function of what is the upcoming paradigm shifts that we will see in how we attack this disease. And so, uh, you know, Chadi, obviously the first, the first paradigm shift in the treatment of cancer was chemotherapy. And for a time, particularly in the late 70s, as you know, the thought was high-dose chemotherapy was going to be for the cure for cancer. And when Larry Einhorn was able to uh, pioneer platinum-based chemotherapy in germ cell tumor and took a cancer that went from a 5% cure rate to a 95% cure rate, it was the first promise that maybe this could be a potential avenue uh, for, for treating cancer. Now, what we learned, unfortunately, over time is that it worked in some blood cancers that worked at germ cell. Well, then the second paradigm shift came in, in, the, in the late 1990s with targeted therapy, Gleevec, the first targeted therapy ever uh, to be developed and obviously saw amazing uh, responses. Then we had HER2 and breast cancer. I think all of us remember ASCO 2005 and the most, probably one of the most powerful sessions ever when the results of the two major phase three um, Herceptin trials came out showing a dramatic benefit in a breast cancer that used to be a horribly deadly disease. 
And then obviously the advent of, of further targeted therapies like sulpicatinib and, and retfuse cancers and so on and so forth. And then the third paradigm shift, which was immunotherapy. I, for one, am always heartwarmed when I still see the long-term follow-up results of Keynote 001 and advanced melanoma. There's still patients five years out who have, who have not progressed, who have had no recurrence of their cancer. And we're beginning to ask this question, are some of these patients cured? Stage four melanoma. Again, if you remember the days before immunotherapy, melanoma was a horribly deadly disease, stage four disease, as you know. And so we've seen, we've seen that. We've seen some dramatic responses, obviously, in MSI high tumors. We've seen dramatic responses in some lung cancers and a variety of other, uh, of other uh, tumor types. So the question is, what's the next paradigm shift that's going to get us to a place where we're seeing dramatic improvements in overall survival? Um, and I think that is, uh, that's the big question. In my opinion, in my opinion, it is going to be the development of drugs, or treatments or modalities that can be both programmable and adaptable. And I say that because that's what cancer is. And the reason why it's deadly is that it can adapt. It can highly, it can, it can morph to its environment. It can change its genomic makeup. It can figure out how to become resistant and so on and so forth, being able to overcome each therapy. And I think as we see in the field, as we begin to develop, for example, personalized cell-based therapies, personalized vaccines, uh, and, 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 and you know, drugs of that genre, ones that can be programmable, and then eventually, I pray, adaptable, I think we'll begin to see some another paradigm shift, in my personal opinion. Part of the progress that we will be doing, uh, Milan, I presume, is that um, we can make an argument that probably our biggest opportunity, and correct me if I'm wrong, hmm. our biggest opportunity to make progress in cancer Mm-hmm. is in preventing metastases. Mm-hmm. Metastatic disease, we certainly are making progress, no question, mm-hmm. but it's still metastatic and maybe the, the, the possibility is tempered. But being able to prevent that evolution into stage four, Absolutely. into metastatic disease is the opportunity. How do you see precision oncology evolving into the earlier stages of disease? Absolutely, uh, Chadi. And so for, for those of us who've uh, uh, been in the field for a long time, we all remember that when precision oncology first made its um, foray uh, into the field, it was really in a highly treatment refractory setting, your typical phase one population, patients who've been multi- through multiple lines of therapy, where these tests were, frankly, in many cases used sort of as a Hail Mary. Is there anything that could be used and to find something that is on or off label uh, to be able to treat these patients. And what we've seen uh, over time is a matriculation of this technology into earlier disease courses. I think now uh, rapidly now become standard of care for patients with newly diagnosed metastatic disease or first line metastatic disease, also with high risk uh, early stage disease using molecular profiling. So I think it's only natural um, now that we're, we're going to see uh, molecular profiling more and more into uh, early stage uh, disease settings. And where I think we're going to see the most rapid adoption is in MRD, so in, uh, with the use of liquid biopsy. So for patients with early stage solid tumors who've completed curative intent therapy, the use of a liquid biopsy test to say, is there any cancer still present in the circulation or not? What we know from a variety of definitive studies that is if we detect circulating DNA or RNA um, in a patient who's completed curative intent therapy, those patients are extremely high risk of relapse. We contrast those to those who are negative for MRD. Those patients in general tend to do quite well. 
And what we're seeing now in the field is the, uh, is the creation and advent of interventional trials based on MRD positivity, where patients who are positive for MRD after curative intent therapy uh, either receive additional chemotherapy or in some cases targeted therapy. And what's been really striking is the data has been crystal clear is that if those patients clear their ctDNA, they do quite well. If they don't, unfortunately, relapse. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of these trials uh, as we go on. I also think, and I think we could all agree on this as well, is that we, we really need to advance our science of detecting these cancers earlier and stage shifting these cancers as much as possible. And so with the use of liquid biopsies and our, our increased capabilities and sensitivity to do so, um, especially uh, with some of the things that we have coming out here at Keras, I'm quite excited that um, and, and hopeful that we'll be able to catch these cancers at their earlier stages. I, I, I really hope to see a day where... Um, comes a rare occasion where you catch a patient with a de novo with de novo metastatic disease that we're capturing and always in the in the earlier disease courses and what we know is crystal clear when we treat in those early in the earliest stages those patients do better one of the things that milan i mean i'm titling this episode just so you know the future of precision oncology um and 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 you know i think everybody on this call realized how much really i admire your innovative vision my question one of the questions i have um is when it comes to the actual technique of sequencing, like in the lab and, and so on, how do you see that evolving? Because part of part of the future is going probably te- technology related. Um, do, do you see, I mean, I don't know, do you see anything in that particular part uh, of the precision oncology? I do. I think um, it's going to be like cell phones, cheaper, faster, and smaller. Yeah. I really do. And, uh, uh, you know, I tried, I don't know what our age difference is, but you may, you may remember those days. uh, Remember those cell phones? I'm much older than you, Milan. That's the age. (laughs) I'm not going to tell listeners. You look a lot better. I am not going to tell listeners how much older I am. You look a lot better than me. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's 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 actually interesting. So uh, cheaper, faster, and, and more, like more information. Well, uh, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I think more information, I think, um, I think eventually you'll see a day of miniaturization. Um, I think the nanopore sequencers that we've seen kind of, they're not ready for clinical prime time, but have uh, been able to, uh, I think we can see a future where we see a huge amount of output uh, from smaller flow cells and so on and so forth. So that's what I meant by smaller. Um, but the uh, agree. It's going to, you know, we, we see that when we look at the trend of the cost of sequencing and its output, it's, it's, it's accelerating faster than Moore's law. And the amount of information that we can obtain today uh, is unbelievable at, at the, at, at the costs that we can do. And I think that's just going to continue to trend down with our advances in technology. I think eventually, and uh, sometime here in, in the not so distant future, the technology will get so good that um, we'll just do whole genome on every patient, even cancer patients, just given the advances in technology. So, you know, there are always the naysayers out there in the world when it Mm -hmm. comes to precision oncology and sequencing. And I, you know, a couple of things that we hear sometimes, I'm curious your thoughts on that. One is, well, two things. Number one is despite all of the improvement and the data and so on, you and I know that there are many patients in advanced stage disease who require sequencing mm-hmm. that just don't. And some of that is because the physicians either don't know or they don't believe of the importance. 
So the first question I have to you is, what do we do there? Where, you know, how do we really educate the masses, or or why are people still nihilistic when it comes to that? And the second part of the question, it is difficult to conduct prospective randomized controlled trials when it comes to the actual testing. It's like almost you need to conduct a randomized controlled trial for a chest X-ray or no chest X-ray in somebody who has a cough. It just, it's not an interventional drug. And there are the purest academicians out there. They say, unless you show me in a prospective randomized controlled trial that doing the test is better than not doing the test, I'm not going to do it. How do you address these two issues? Yeah. You know, Chadi, it's sometimes unfathomable to me uh, where uh, you look at the numerous now FDA approvals of efficacious targeted agents based on genomic alterations across a variety of cancer types. I'm hard-pressed now to see an argument of why we don't sequence all advanced stage patients. I, 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 can't, I, I, I really can't come up with an argument to say that that should be the case. You look at pan-cancer indications. How else are you supposed to find these patients? How do you find a TMB high without sequencing? Um, you know, some of these really actionable biomarkers. What about somatic alterations in, in DNA repair genes? Uh, for example, in prostate cancer, you have an FDA approval laparib in those, in those patients. You can't do that without sequencing. And so there, there's a, and we can go by tumor, major tumor type by major tumor type and, and walk through all the different scenarios where we know there are, that, that um, actual genomic alterations exist and where, uh, uh, where there, there are potential drugs that could be used. That's just, now that's just drugs that are FDA approved. Now, what about all these wonderful drugs that we now currently have, promising drugs, I should say, in clinical trials? A lot of the newest clinical trials, as you know, many of these trials are genomically directed. You're only going to get these patients on by performing genomic sequencing to identify the target population to get to those clinical trials. Again, you have to do genomic sequencing to get patients to those trials. And I think you would agree, uh, we want to encourage as much as possible patients getting on trials to have access to cutting-edge medicines. So... I think, again, uh, this is standard of care, in my opinion. Um, when it comes to the randomized controlled trial, you know, I, again, I, I don't think, you know, these studies actually have been done where people have looked at sequencing versus not sequencing, and the studies have shown almost unequivocally that patients who get sequencing uh, do better than those who don't. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of these studies. And what what we've also seen is obviously a lot of studies, randomized controlled trials of, of, a, of a molecular-directed agent versus standard of care. Take MSI, for example. These patients have, have done, done quite well. Where you're going to have a harder time, and this is actually the one argument that I actually can agree with, is that for some of these alterations, the prevalence is so rare that you can't do a randomized control study against the standard of care. And we saw this with uh, actually with MedExon 14 in lung cancer and comatinib. You know, uh, whether, you know, it's still never been proven in trial whether you should use that as for first-line metastatic lung cancer because there's not enough patients to run a first-line trial. But what has been done, what have you seen over time is just sort of um, acceptance of standard of care practice to put those into the first line. So there you're going to have some tr trouble doing randomized controlled trials. But from, you know, your original question from this overall premise of should we be doing sequencing, uh, you know, the naysayers is the standard of care. I, I, again, I'm hard-pressed to find evidence now to really suggest that that shouldn't be the case, my personal opinion. Yeah. You know, you bring up really a good point in terms of the some of these rare mutations, very difficult to do an, an RCT. And, uh, and, and I do think that we cannot answer every single scientific question with a randomized, we'd love to, 
but it's just not practical or, or doable. Well, this has been very, very helpful, um, you know, to, to just get an insight with this. I want to um, uh, leave you with any final thoughts under the umbrella of the future of precision oncology. Talk to listeners. The future is bright. The future is bright. I remember in my training, there was this prevailing uh, theory in the oncology field, and Chadi, you may remember this, uh, a lot of talk about cancer being a chronic disease. Um, and it was kind of, I think, in my opinion, uh, a bit of a fatalistic thought that, you know, let's not think about curing cancer anymore. Let's just try to make it manageable. And I, look, I think there's a lot to be said about uh, improving progression-free survival rates and the importance in the milestones that gets patients to important milestones in their lives and so on and so forth. I, I don't disagree with that. But I do not think we should lose hope or lose focus on the fact that our goal needs to be to cure this, cure this disease to develop novel therapies that as we start off our conversation, that one day that the disease-free survival rate is greater than 90% for all patients with, with solid tumors. I really hope that it would be the case. And I think with our advances in not just genomics and artificial intelligence, but also in targeted drug development in immunotherapy, and now with our advances in vaccines and cell-based therapy and, and, and others like it, and also with uh, Protex and other degraders, uh, we're going to see, I think, a continued renaissance in this field, and I think we will see a paradigm shift soon that's going to continue to uh, dramatically increase the overall survival rate. If you're listening to this podcast and you have not gotten inspired, you've got issues, okay? You've just heard me as the host. If you have not been inspired with this podcast, you've got issues. Hit me up and talk to me because I got to speak to you. Milan, it's been really a pleasure to have you on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Really thank you so much for everything you are doing inside Keras and outside Keras. You're a true inspiration and a wonderful coworker and a colleague and a friend. Thank you so much. Honors all mine. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate your help, your support, and your tuning in to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Radovich, his aspirations, and all of these aspirations ultimately are designed to help our dear patients with cancer. As I've said many times, we are all either current patients, future patients, or past patients. And when we are patients, we want the best care for us. And if we were diagnosed with cancer, we want to know the molecular underpinning of this tumor because it will hopefully help in directing better therapy. Thank you, Milan, for visiting with us on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Thank you all for listening, for supporting this podcast. Until next time, take care.